0: Welcome to Let Genius Burn, a podcast series about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott. I'm Jamie Burgess. And I'm Jill Fuller. In today's episode, we welcome John Madison, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the biography Eden's Outcast, a dual biography of Louisa May Alcott and her father. We're taking a deep dive into Louisa's moral character. This is... Is Louisa as inspiration?
1: It feels overwhelming to introduce an author that we both admire so much. John's contribution to Elcott scholarship is truly special. Eden's Outcasts is the book that led me to study Louisa May Alcott, so it also has significant personal importance. Speaking to John was a great honor. I even choked up during the conversation. As you'll hear, John is able to draw the types of connections between history and the present that make the study of history and biography so valuable and worthwhile. John Madison is Distinguished Professor of English at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in the City University of New York. He was awarded the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for his biography, Eden's Outcasts, the story of Louisa May Alcott and her father. He's also the author of The Lives of Margaret Fuller and the editor of The Annotated Little Women. His most recent book, A Worse Place Than Hell, was chosen by Civil War Monitor as one of the outstanding Civil War books of 2021.
2: My encounter with the Alkuts, uh has kind of a background that goes back to before um, you know, I even started thinking about them. Uh, in that, when I was in English graduate school, uh, about two and a half or so years in, I became a dad. And um, my, uh, my wife, Michelle, uh, was kind of in charge of you know, putting food on the table, making money for us. And so I became sort of Mr. Mom, uh, rather unexpectedly. Uh, but, uh, but through that experience of, of being a hands-on dad, uh, I became very interested in the art of parenthood. And uh, I'm one of the few people probably who came to the Alcott's not through uh, Louisa or even through May, but rather through Bronson, uh, because it was brought to my attention that, that Bronson Alkit was also a sort of quixotic, uh, idealistic, hands-on father who was really deeply obsessed with, uh, with early childhood education and, uh, and in, inventive methods of, of child care. Uh, And so I, you know, began to develop an interest in that way. And then, uh, then also, uh, I had an interest in, um, in 19th century utopian communities. I always thought it might be interesting and neat to write a book about places like Brook Farm and Fruitlands and Thoreau's Community of One at uh, Walden Pond, etc. And, uh, and so in, uh, in 2001, I, uh, I wrote an article for new England quarterly that had nothing at all to do with the all kids. Uh, but I got a phone call after publishing the article from a, a literary agent. He introduced himself, Peter Steinberg. And, uh, and he, um, you know, said, "Hey, I've read your article. I'd like to try representing you for a nonfiction book." I said, "Well, wow, I've been discovered, but I had really just no idea uh, what I would, you know, possibly work on for a book project at that point." So he said, "Okay, you know, come to lunch, uh, bring half a dozen ideas, and we'll pick the best one." And the best one at that point was. The utopian community idea, uh, and, uh, and so I got sort of the tentative go-ahead. Uh, next stop was Houghton Library uh, at Harvard, where I started uh, doing research on Fruitlands, and I had. Um, I knew that Bronson Alcott was a copious keeper of journals. I thought this is going to be great. I'll just go to the Fruitlands journals and this thing's going to write itself. Well, as both of you may well be aware, mm-hmm. uh, the Fruitlands <laughs> journals don't exist anymore to anyone's <laughs> knowledge. You know, as you know, they were, uh, they were lost uh, a couple years after Fruitlands when Bronson was, was visiting other utopian communities and uh, they got loaded onto a stagecoach and just, you know, rode off into oblivion. Um, but, you uh, during that visit to Houghton Library, I started reading around some of the other Bronson um, journals uh, and became really fascinated with him and, uh, and his um, you know, interest in methods of education, among, among other topics. So I went back to my agent and said, OK, the book is now a biography of Bronson Alcott. Um, my agent said, well, OK, never really heard of him, but, you know, see what you can do. And then mm. finally, finally, the uh, the the big light bulb. You know, flipped on, yeah, and which was, hey, dummy, you know, here you are, this quixotic, education obsessed father with a verbally gifted <laughs> daughter. Why not write the dual biography of the you know, education obsessed quixotic man and the verbally gifted daughter? This is going to help you understand fatherhood, and your experiences of fatherhood in turn will help you read between the lines of the Bronson and and Louisa relationship, and it's going to make for a better, richer book. Uh, And uh, at that point, I had had just no clue how well that was going to work, um, because uh, in fact, I do think that the writing of Eden's Outcasts uh, made me a better, more thoughtful, attentive father. And at the same time, um, my experiences with my daughter Rebecca were, were close enough in spirit to uh to the, the relationship of Bronson and Louisa do I think add a kind of interesting if you know, very slightly speculative dimension to my interpretation of that relationship. So that's the answer, more or less. Wow. wow. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I got two didn't even heard
0: that story before <laughs> and I was still like, oh yeah, spot on. I love it. I love the parallels. Well
1: and yeah. I love it because and, it uh, is not That's not the angle I was anticipating. You know, you think it's going to be, oh, well, I love Louisa or I love Bronson and I really just wanted to delve. And and kind of that roundabout way you came to it. But then just that light bulb moment. It's perfect. That's perfect.
2: Yeah, it was it was really it was pretty great uh, because when I was writing the book. She was about the same age that Louisa was at, for instance, at Fruitlands. Mm. And so when I visited Fruitlands for the first time, I brought her along. And I knew by then from Louisa's journals that she enjoyed running on the hill at Fruitlands. And so when we got out of the car, I said to, to Rebecca, okay, run, run on the hill. And you know, I sort of watched her, and I took notes. And there's um, there's even a paragraph uh, in one of the Fruitlands chapters of Eden's Outcast that talks about uh, the slope of that hill and how, if you're an exuberant child running down it, you're not running so much as you're flying. And uh, and I talk about how for Louisa to be running down that hill was to join in the in the uh, exaltation of the birds. And very few people know that that paragraph really is just as much about my daughter, Rebecca, as it is about about the young Louisa. That's beautiful, John. Yeah, kind of fun.
0: And I also think Jill and I both relate to the experience of coming to the Alcotts not through the fiction, but through their real lives and then making those parallels to your own Personal interest, professional life. I mean, mm-hmm. we both read other things before we yeah.
2: read. Uh, that's you know, that's something, Jamie, that I really have found in uh, in relating with everyone I've known who works at Orchard House. That mm-hmm. all of those people, and yourself included, uh, have been bound together by a, a kind of invisible spirit that that is, you know, the spirit of the Allcuts. and it's one that is very inclusive and very communitarian and exceptionally loving. Um, And I could not have asked, I think, for a better uh, introduction to book writing, because Eden's Outcast was my first book, than that community at Orchard House, which was tremendously welcoming and supportive of me as I was engaging in a venture that, you know, I was just kind of going in blind. I had no idea Um, you know, how to write a biography. I'd never written anything on that scale before. But because of people like Jan Turnquist, the executive director of Orchard House, and so many of the other um, people, you know, Lisa Adams, et cetera, who are so supportive of of that institution, uh, it became, you know, almost a walk in the park. I I shouldn't say that, but it made it much much easier for me to do the work that I did.
1: Mm.
0: One
1: of the questions I have it's such a comprehensive biography. You know, it touches on so much of Louisa's life, Bronson's life. Um, and you mentioned that it's your first book, which I can imagine that it was challenging to try to do you're not just doing one biography, you're doing two biographies essentially. Yes. So what in in doing the research and structuring a dual biography where you're you've got these two narratives that you are trying to weave together. Kind of how did you decide to structure it? And then what did you have to leave
2: out, okay, yeah, that's a that's a super question. And it's, uh, you, know, a, you know, it involves sort of a complicated answer, I think. Well, one thing that um, that I did that was really helpful to me was that I did not write the book sequentially. In other words, I didn't start with page one and, you know, work straight through to the end, because I find that that kind of linear composition is a recipe for writer's block. Yeah, you know, if you keep telling yourself that you can't get to chapter three until you've written chapter two, you can hit all kinds of roadblocks during your, uh, your full creative process. So what I actually ended up doing was I, I started by writing the Fruitlands chapters, uh, which I think are four, five, and six. I, I'd have to go back and be sure um, because they were the ones that were most vivid in my mind and the ones that I really had the strongest sense of arc and where I wanted to go with them. When those chapters were finished, I leaped ahead to the Civil War chapter because uh I'm uh, you know a longtime enthusiast about the Civil War. In fact, my most recent book, um uh, Worse Place than Hell, is about the Battle of Fredericksburg and devotes a lot of attention to uh Louisa in the aftermath of that battle um so anyway, so I did that uh second, and then I kind of got stuck, and I was you know getting a little bit tired a little bit burned out. And uh, I needed to sort of refresh myself. So I said, okay, I'm going to do something experimental. I'm going to go and write the last chapter, and I'm going to kill all of them. (laughs) And... (laughs) And uh, and that act of literary mass homicide was extremely liberating. Uh, I really felt like I now had control over the uh, over the whole project, and so from that point I was able to go back to the very beginning and fill in all of the gaps and and work straight through. Um, in terms of you know uh, you know what. I was sorry to leave out. There were other parts of your question that you might want to uh, recur to. I'm just going to respond to the ones I can recollect. Uh, As far as things that I I left out, um, I give very short shrift to a number of years in the 1870s. Um, if If you want to find out about Louisa May Alcott between about 1873 and 1877, I strongly recommend that you go someplace else. Uh, because those are those are years that um, that didn't really hold anything you' um, particularly fascinating for me and I wanted to make sure that the um, uh, that the uh, that the pace of the book remained fairly strong and engaging so I didn't want to get bogged down so I made some some sacrifices there Also when I submitted the manuscript to my editor at WW. Norton my editor got back to me and said, well, this is fine, but if we're going to meet our price point, uh, you're going to have to cut 22% of this. And so, uh, yeah. So I, in fact, went back through every single chapter and and from each one excised about you know, 22% of what I'd previously written, Ouch. which was, yeah, it was really kind of, um, you know, the word scary gets overused, but, but it was kind of, oh, my goodness, you know, I, this is, I thought it was great the way it was, what do I do now? And, um, but what I found was that that was, that turned out to be excellent advice. Um, because I found numerous places where I could tighten the prose and go with a more active verb or cut out a, a clause that was hanging around doing nothing. And so bit by bit, word by word, the, the manuscript became tighter, more incisive, uh, and yet without, in most cases, losing a lot of the necessary information. So really, at the end of it all, as I recollect, there were there was about one paragraph I, I probably could have left it in you know but but there was a paragraph in which I described wartime Washington um, that um, that I ended up cutting um, and and not putting in but uh, but apart from that I ended up being very satisfied with the uh, even with the somewhat drastically revised and and, uh, and shortened book so
0: did that paragraph get a reprise in the worst place than how?
2: Uh, no, that par. you know, I don't even know where I would find that paragraph. It would have been a good place to, uh, to resurrect it. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, you know, I probably, you know, I, I should have done something like that. Um, because one of the challenges of, of writing A Worse Place Than Hell, uh, particularly the Louisa chapters, was that I had already told that story in another mm. book uh, in a way that I had found, you know, satisfying. Uh, to my tastes and and to have to go back and do it differently um was um, was maybe one of the biggest uh, rhetorical challenges, if not the biggest of of writing worse place than hell.
1: So on that note, kind of talking about a worse place than hell, um how did you then choose the the five figures that you have there? Um and you know, with Louisa, was there ever a decision? or a thought in your head maybe that she wouldn't be one of them because you'd already written about her?
2: I I actually uh, determined very definitively on those five figures from the absolute Uh, get-go. And one of the reasons uh, that I did was that I wanted to have a, a kind of philosophical emotional balance in the book in Worse Place Than Hell. Uh, that treated war both as uh, an event of extreme violence and an event in which people were enabled to express extraordinary uh, acts of kindness and mercy. And so, um, you know, as as you, of course, know, you know, Louisa May Alcott volunteers as a nurse in the Union Army and uh, and and joins uh, the army just after the Battle of Fredericksburg. Um, and uh, something very similar happens with her great literary contemporary Walt Whitman, uh, who also, in the aftermath of Fredericksburg, goes to Washington and spends, in his case, the rest of the war, uh, attending to the needs of, of sick and wounded soldiers in the nation's capital. Of course, we know Louisa was not able to do that because she fell desperately ill with typhoid pneumonia uh, only a matter of weeks, really, after uh, after beginning her service. But um, but. In order to have that balance of uh, of violence and mercy, I wanted to have a number of soldiers and 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 a, and a couple of nurses. you know to balance out the masculine and the feminine, to balance out of uh, force and feeling in a sense. Uh, and there are other. Kind of latent balances, I think, that exist in that book that kind of make it all sort of balance out like an Alexander Calder mobile, right? If you remove any one, then it tilts and it's no good anymore. Um, and in fact, um, you know, the the last two sections of the of the book are are called. Two nurses and two soldiers, uh, John Pelham and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. on the one hand, and Whitman and Alcott on the other, to reinforce that feeling of um, of emotional and philosophical balance. Um, and you know, as far as you know, initially choosing those five figures. I had them in my head uh, because each one of them was, in a way, representative of an interest that I had had earlier in life. Uh, I became a, a Civil War enthusiast when I was, you know, an early teenager, and I kind of had this thing. For, uh, for John Pelham, the Confederate cannoneer, who is the one uh, Southern figure strongly represented in my book. And then I became a lawyer for a few years. And so I was fascinated by Oliver Wendell Holmes and his contributions to American legal thought. Then back to graduate school and discovering Walt Whitman and then writing my first book, finding out about Louisa May Alcott. And then finally uh, writing my second book, The Lives of Margaret Fuller, and... Uh, and being tantalized by this kind of shadowy figure, uh, the chaplain Arthur Fuller, um, who uh, is, is someone who's you know, almost completely passed over in the typical histories of the Civil War or even of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But his story is tremendously emotionally moving. You know, this this uh this, this man who is you know physically frail but wants to help his country and wants to demonstrate his manhood, and who ends up doing so in this you know spectacular, almost Hemingway-esque sort of display of courage at the in the last moments of his life. And also as as far as you know, choosing these five, it just worked out perfectly that each of my five stories that I weave together in, in the book took me to every place on the Fredericksburg battlefield that I wanted to be in order to narrate the story of that battle. So I start with, you know, the crossing of the river and with the, the Fuller and Holmes stories. And then uh, I move to the Pelham story on the, on the Union left, then to the Union center with uh, George Whitman, Walt Whitman's brother. And then finally with, uh, with Private John Surrey, uh, who, of course, figures in the Louisa story very prominently uh, on the right side of the Union line. So I could sort of weave a narrative chronology through the Battle of Fredericksburg based on the biographical materials that I was using.
0: Did you, I assume you made like a pilgrimage also to Fredericksburg. Did you have any like personal experiences that went into that writing as well, like you did with Fruitlands?
2: Oh, yeah. It's really, really important, I think, when you can. Uh, as a writer, to go to the places that you're describing, uh, even when they've been dramatically transformed over, you know, more than a century. Uh, One of the wonderful things, of course, of about Concord is that so many of the places are beautifully and brilliantly preserved. Uh, that's not really true, sadly, of Fredericksburg, because Fredericksburg is this sort of, you know, teeming small city that just continued to grow after the civil war, such that a lot of the, uh, the, the, the iconic places in the battlefield are just now kind of grown over by, by suburbia. Uh, and it can be actually a little bit of a disappointing place to go visit. Oh, wow. Yeah. However, there are certain places that are still... You know well preserved uh the 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 landing area where the uh where the for uh, the union troops first come across into the town of fredericksburg that you can still get a feel for uh the stone wall near the top of marie's heights a lot of that stone wall now is replica but it's in the proper place and they're about maybe 50 yards in front of it that have been uh, that have been kept the way that it that it was um probably my best experience at fredericksburg was um was Taking a tour, as I'm sure you can appreciate, as a mm-hmm. tour guide, Jamie, um, from a gentleman by the name of, of Frank O'Reilly, uh, who was a Marine veteran and who had written uh, a superb book on the Fredericksburg military campaign, and he was so kind when he found out that I was going to be part of his tour, he actually rewrote his tour so that he could talk about things that he thought would be of interest and value to me. So I uh, I owe him a big tip of the hat.
0: So now you've written about Louisa's time as a nurse in two separate books, in Eden's Outcasts, and then again in A Worst Place in Hell. Why is this such a standout period of her life, in your opinion? It's such a short time. I mean, it's it's just really a few weeks before she gets sick, and I know for both me and Jill, we do think of it this way. We think her, the quality of her writing was different in that time. We think that there are things that make it really stand out, but just. For you, what is it about that period in her life?
2: Well, I think that uh, Louise's time as a nurse really was kind of a rite of passage for her. And even though she's 30 years old when it happens, it is kind of a move definitively into adulthood Mm -hmm. in that it's uh, her first real time uh, away from home, separated from relatives and, and on her own. Uh, and so for, for, you know, in that sense, it's, it's kind of a, a big step for her. It's also the place in which she uh, acquires her writing style. And that happens kind of serendipitously because uh, she writes letters home from uh, the Union Hotel Hospital to her family. And these are letters which, as you know, uh, have been lost. Uh, but which were then transformed by her into the book that was really her first um, major commercial success, which, of course, is Hospital Sketches. And what happens in her letters, I kind of presume, is that for the first time, for one thing, she's writing about actual events rather than dreaming up her uh, somewhat sensationalistic and fantastic Uh, And when I say fantastic, I mean as an adjective form of fantasy, uh, blood and thunder stories. Uh, And she's discovering that this life of hers, that she's kind of regarded as being a little bit dull, is actually a source of fantastic literary material. So she writes home in a way that, you know, conveys the seriousness and the sadness of the hospital, but also has this uh, percolating humor uh, that, that lightens the, the, the load of what she's communicating. And so she now, you know, for the first time, has a particular independent style, which is really important for her in her development. Another thing that happens on a more personal level is that it's at the hospital And her work and in her work there, that she finally gains the total respect and admiration of her father Bronson.
0: Oh, of Bronson, yeah. Yeah.
2: Because Bronson's, you know, Bronson's highest good in the world, the thing that he admires more than anything else, is extreme self-sacrifice in a worthy and noble cause. And up until the time of you know, Louisa's time at the Union Hotel Hospital. Uh, he regards her as being self-absorbed. He regards her as being kind of the black sheep of a, of a very white sheep sort of family. And as, as you know, at the end of Bronson's writing career in 1882, when he writes sonnets and cansanets, he writes a poem for Louisa. He writes a poem for each of the four daughters, uh, both living and dead. And he ends, and the subject of that poem for Louisa is her service at the hospital. It's not her literary career. It's not of anything that she did for the family. It's that moment that, to him, stands out as a moment of self-sacrifice and heroism. And that poem, mm-hmm. of course, ends with uh, him pressing to her to him as duty's faithful child. And so it's this moment of family rapprochement. Um, of course, it's a moment of tremendous loss for her as well, because... She develops the terrible typhoid pneumonia, is brought home raving, almost dies, and uh, and is given um, the disastrous remedy of calomel or mercurous chloride, this mercury compound uh, that appears to have uh, poisoned her uh, on some level for the rest of her life. And so... It's, it's a period in which she very abruptly parts with her youthful health and energy, uh, but at the same time has all of these gains in terms of her style and in terms of her family relations. Another thing that works really well uh, for a writer about Louisa's uh, time at the hospital is that it fits very well into the sort of classic story trope that we find in fiction of Voyage and return. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. The person who's kind of yeah. kicking around on a piece of ground in her hometown, to quote Pink Floyd, mm-hmm. um, you know, without direction, who then gets a call or is somehow transported into this other realm in which she has to learn new customs and acquire new skills and, and, and develop a kind of maturity that then enables her to return to her place of origin Um, you know, mature, fortified, more confident, what have you. It's the Mm -hmm. same story in a sense as something like The Wizard of Oz, right? We can Mm -hmm. think about uh, Louisa almost in the same terms as Dorothy Gale, right? Who who, finds uh, a completely different realm in which her imagination is set free, in which she can express uh, these impulses of heroism that have lain latent in her. Uh, And so Louise's time at the hospital is storytelling gold for anybody who you know is invested in um, in those kinds of traditional but sort of eternally self-renewing tropes of the fictionalized life, which in her case is is factual.
0: That's making me think two things. It's making me think I can't imagine as a writer having those like internal critics. And then the biggest one, turning around and saying, "You're actually great." Let me, you know, let me just tell you that you're you've turned to gold now. That would be so huge for setting free a creative impulse, you know, to eliminate the feeling of Bronson's criticism by finally having his acceptance.
2: Well, there's uh, there's no doubt of that because, mm-hmm. as as we also know. Um, Louisa was always kind of her mother's child, right? They, mm-hmm. they had this uh, very deep connection uh, in terms of their sense of right and wrong, in terms of their uh, sometimes uncontrollable temper, uh, in, in terms of just the way in which they emotionally and spiritually related to the world. Whereas Bronson is, of course, much more passive, much more placid, uh, and he and Louisa seem to come from different planets, But And and he is, of course, as you know, very critical of her in her Mm -hmm. earlier years. But once she comes back from the hospital, if he ever says a negative word about her again, I've never found it. Um, Mm. It really transforms that relationship. And as you suggest, that transformation is very arguably uh, something that enabled her to acquire a kind of of your freedom and authority in her writing that she hadn't previously had
0: she's seen something now that they haven't seen she has seen this very violent very disturbing in many ways experience that Bronson especially knows very little about and she can finally you know have feel that authority and and know it she almost died she and now she comes back Mm -hmm. you know
2: yeah, much more
0: and, confident
2: and, and i don't know if you folks are aware of this but currently i'm i'm working with uh, a good friend of mine uh, on a uh, on a screenplay adaptation of that episode in uh, in Louisa May Alcott's life
0: wow uh,
2: and uh, and we've we've written more than 100 pages of it at this point
0: That's uh, incredible no we didn't know it's
2: that great We're to see so, you <laughs> so we, we fictionalize it a little bit uh, in order to make it just a touch more cinematic. Um, but, uh, but that project is well underway. And, uh, and so if any of your podcast listeners, you know, happen to be film producers, <laughs> you know, please get in touch because, uh, we would just, we would love to, uh, to, to see this, um, you know, brought to fruition and, and actually up on screen.
1: So yeah. Weird. Well, we've, we've mentioned before on, on, like our social media and stuff about, you know, wanting a biopic wanting, you know, and we, every time there's always a lot of people commenting. Yes. Yes. We want to see Louisa on the screen. So, okay, yeah. everyone let's yeah,
2: get, really let's do. get yeah, it happening you, here. Uh, Louisa may all get multimillionaires out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Here I am.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I want to go back to what we were talking about, John, too, about what you said after after what happened at the hospital, you know, Bronson had, you know, you can't find any negative words that Bronson had towards her. And one could argue that that's potentially because, um, you know, then she became successful, right? Hospital sketches is success. But then you look at, you know, like the poem that he wrote to her where it's not about her success. It's about her time at the hospital. And that then refutes that argument that, that is not what he focused on. That is not how, where he saw her success and what, you know, what he valued in her. Um, So I I think that's really important to to lay out there too, because, you know, hospital sketches came right on the heels of her experience. I mean, within months. So, you know, you could say, oh, well, of course, you know, he, he saw that she was now a commercial success and she's being lauded in the Atlantic and she's, you know, so yeah, now he's not going to say anything negative, but you know, all of the things that he writes about her, and, you know, he writes to his mother that, you know, if we had known the sacrifice was so great, we would not have done it, you know. So for us to remember, and I know we've talked about Bronson on this podcast and we go back and forth about, you know, his qualities, good and bad. And, there, you know, he he's definitely a polarizing figure for our listeners and for, you know, we've, we've definitely talked about him. Um, but I think that's important because, as we've said before in history, there are no heroes, there are no villains. We are all just complicated figures. And Bronson is one of those, and I think that's what makes him so interesting, yeah. and so and, and why we talk about him so much, and why Louisa even found him so complicated and complex and loved him so deeply. I think is because she just she she knew that about him. So yeah,
2: yeah. it's it's very important to understand that Bronson did not simply regard her as his meal ticket after right. uh, after Little Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true that his career enjoyed a renaissance at the same time. And there's also very little doubt that that he was indirectly, at least, helped along by, you know, the the acquired fame of his daughter. But um, but you know, Bronson gave conversations in the later part of his life about the various luminaries whom he had known. He would lecture about Emerson. He would lecture about Thoreau and so forth. But uh, but he never presented a lecture on. Louisa. He would answer questions about her if they were posed by the audience, and invariably they would be posed. But uh, but he was, I think, quite respectful uh, and and circumspect in not simply jumping onto her. I, I guess what would the female cor- correlative be for?
0: Of coattails, uh, coat,
2: yeah, coattails. Right. He didn't jump yeah, onto. Head her coats? Head of coats, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's an important thing to be, to, to be aware of. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm glad that you raised it.
1: He also did not resent her for her fame, which I think he could have because he wanted that fame. He wanted to write a book that was a bestseller. He wanted to be like Emerson. He, he wanted people to gather for his conversations. And especially at that time, um, you know, Louisa was a woman and she's this famous, very rich woman, you know, once she became this best-selling author and he absolutely could have resented her for that, that his daughter ends up being the one who brings in the crowds. His daughter ends up being the one who makes the money. And he didn't that we can find, you know, that he didn't resent her. He didn't uh, write about her negatively in, in that kind of way. Um, maybe I don't know. Maybe you found something, but but in what I've seen, I don't I don't recall reading anything like
0: that. So in that, I, I give that him credit. His personality, right? So,
1: so I give him thought. credit for that because, especially at that time, he absolutely could have. He could have resented his daughter for that.
2: I agree, and and I think also uh, we tend now to take for granted uh, that that women are worthy of being educated, that right. daughters are worthy mm-hmm. of you know educational resources being lavished mm-hmm. upon them. And uh, and you know, one can find really tragic examples of talented women in the 19th century, really smart women, uh, whose whose fathers just couldn't see it and couldn't appreciate it, and uh, and left their daughters intentionally uneducated, even when they were lavishing educational resources on their sons. The 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 saddest example of that I can think of. Is uh, is the Alice James story, right? whose who's father Henry mm-hmm. Senior, uh, you know, scours right. America and Western Europe for the best education for his boys, and you read Alice's diary, and it is incandescent. It's beautiful. This is a woman who had you know, unlimited things to say, and was never given the opportunity to say them within the construct of this very patriarchal family. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of the things you were interested in asking me about, actually, was similarities between the two iconic New England families. Right, because you
1: also wrote a biography about Margaret Fuller.
2: Right. Exactly. The Lives of Margaret Fuller. And one of the the first similarities and and kind of the similarity that brought me into the Margaret Fuller project was the fact that both um, Louisa and Margaret are... Ah, uh, daughters of highly influential fathers who did believe in the value of educating their daughters, but who, in both cases, didn't really know how to get it right. Um, you know in that uh, Timothy Fuller was a, a terrible taskmaster with with Margaret. He discovered that she had a a precocious facility for languages. And so he had her, learning Latin and translating Virgil by the age of nine, uh, and staying up with her late at night, doing conjugations and declensions and so forth, until she has nightmares as a child. Uh, And so she grows Mm -hmm. up uh, as a brilliant but also um, unbalanced, not in in terms of mental illness, but a lack of balance among the intellect, which is developed to a fairly well, and the emotions and the body, which are Mm neglected.
1: Yeah, their uh, social and, maturity
2: and yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, uh you read Margaret Fuller's writings as, as she tries to relate to men, and the subtext is always, I'm the smartest woman in the world. Why why don't you love me? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and so it's really kind of sad. And then you know, we can talk um also about Bronson and his kind of the hyperdrive that he went into, trying to understand and educate his daughters, all of the Um, compendious journals that he keeps on the early development of um, both Anna and and Louisa, less so with Lizzie, Uh, and this desire to understand his daughters and to absolutely know them inside out, um, but in so doing, subjecting them to this rigid and difficult moral scrutiny in which they can never really be angelic enough. Uh, and, and Louisa, of course, rebels against it. And we've already talked about how they were oil and water uh, in the earlier parts of, of her life, because he just didn't have the, um, you know, the appreciation of the kind of character that she had. He didn't realize that a lot of her rebelliousness was just this fiery, insatiable intellect waiting to burst forth and be recognized. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so those are those are interesting parallels between uh, between Louisa Alcott and Margaret Fuller. Also, interestingly enough, they both become nurses uh, in uh, in worthy military causes. And we've talked about Louisa for a second. And Margaret goes to Rome. uh, And during the Roman Revolution in the late 1840s, uh, she is the matron of a hospital caring for sick and wounded uh, soldiers who are fighting for uh, for Italian independence. Also, interestingly enough, with both women, there's this Polish connection in that uh, Louisa is inspired to create Theodore Lawrence, a.k.a. Laurie, in Little Women by the the Polish youth, uh, Ladis Lajewiczewski. And uh, and Margaret Fuller becomes a very close friend of the Polish national poet and mystic Adam Miskewicz. So there's this interesting Mm -hmm. Central European thing going on that's really unexpected and, uh, and improbable.
1: There's also, I mean, this is maybe a bit loose, but there's also the the drowning bit, um, you know, not to spoil it for everyone, but oh, you know, Margaret holy. Fuller does drown, that's how she she dies, yes. you know, she drowns in a terrible storm right off Fire Island um, as they're coming back, but uh, and then Louisa has her, her moment at the mill dam where she does contemplate suicide um, and thinks about falling in and drowning, which. I've, yeah. I've
2: and, and she's also scene. rescued from drowning as a, as a She child. is. That's right. As when she child, falls yeah. into the, yeah, in Boston. Yeah, I had that thought the about,
1: about that one too. That's, that's right.
2: Yeah. And, uh, and, and Louisa, we also know was somewhat petrified of, of mm-hmm. death by drowning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she writes in hospital sketches about finding the, the the fattest woman that she can grab onto for for buoyancy if the if the ship should <laughs> happen to sink. That's right. So that's right. um, so yeah, that that is that's also in the mix for for both of them.
0: I do think that it's interesting how both Margaret and Louisa were given the the benefit and opportunity of education, and it sounds almost like Margaret Fuller was held back by it in the way that she defined herself so closely. Whereas Louisa, never having been given all that praise and told like, you're the smartest and most gifted child, it, it was almost like freedom and permission for her to mm-hmm. flower. Um, more so, I think, than Margaret, who mm-hmm. who became sort of obsessed with that perfection. and And even when it was, you know, totally impossible i remember i read the lives of margaret fuller during the weeks of the christmas program at orchard house so like fully in costume as may in may's room with the book on my lap and just like you know reading it just like i did with eden's outcast like couldn't put it down turning you know each page and looking so forward to like the guests leaving the room so i could get back to my book (laughs) Um, but that was the part that stood out to me so much about Margaret Fuller and something that I related to about her childhood was kind of that obsession with, um, knowing the most, like you said, like if I'm the smartest, then I'll be the most loved. And like how, how hard a realization that is that those two things are, are actually mutually exclusive and don't really (laughs) exist.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I, um, it, it took me an incredible number of years to realize that people are not always grateful to you. If you appear (laughs) to be smarter than they
0: are. (laughs) Right. Right. But anyway, an interesting dichotomy, not to say that Margaret Fuller, you know, stopped learning or that she stopped growing, but she, she didn't have the same creative capacity like louisa did louisa invented all these characters all these plots all these settings that was not really part of margaret's repertoire that's
1: what i was going to say is that louisa had intellect but she also had a creative aspect you know or at least a different type of creativity attached to it that maybe went in a different direction then
2: yeah we're really talking about two extremely different minds mm-hmm. and uh, and and margaret fuller became you know painfully aware that, that she had tremendous talent, but not genius. And of course, you know, the, the title of your podcast is, you know, Let Genius Burn. And, uh, and I think a wonderful book could be written, I don't think I'm going to write it, but a wonderful book could be written about female genius in the American 19th century mm-hmm. and, and what that word would have meant at that time and both the burdens and the privileges of it. Because there's this, um, there's a story as as you may be aware of Henry James Jr. the novelist talking with with Louisa May Alcott and saying, "Oh my dear, you know all of this about your being a genius. Well, it's simply not true, you know." And yeah. uh, I don't really know how how she responded to that, mm. and she probably laughed all the way to the bank because. Uh, <laughs> with, with, <you> know, <laughs> Henry couldn't sell five books. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, I'm sure there was some, some, uh, some issues there.
1: I love that idea. Cause we have talked a lot on this podcast about how to, de- how de- genius was defined and genius was strictly for men. And, you know, I love Louisa's quote in one of her letters about, you know, genius is infinite patience. She saw genius as hard work and what yeah. you put into it and, you know, how that was not what was seen and, and mm-hmm. not how it was defined for men. And, you know, kind of the classical definition of genius, but um, yeah, how that she was changing it and other women of her era were changing it. And I, I just, I love that. Yeah. And how that applies to Margaret Fuller and the Peabody's and all of these other women. And yeah. Peabody sisters are a great example. Eden's Outcast, you said it was your first book, but it actually won the Pulitzer prize. So what was that like? That must've been incredible.
2: Uh, it it absolutely was, and uh, I still look back on it and uh, and feel as if I sort of lived a Disney movie, um, <laughs> because uh, the the writing of Eden's Outcasts, um, you know, although the book ended up you know, you know being quite satisfactory, uh, was a really difficult time for me because I was teaching uh, seven classes a year at uh, you know four and, and three at a at a you know a pretty tough public university. My parents were uh, well into their 80s and were developing, you know, care issues and, and, and so on. Uh, at the same time, trying to shepherd my daughter through middle school, which, of course, is not the easiest thing in the world at all. And, uh, and so through all of that you know, craziness, I was able to, to write and publish a book. And then, you know, it, it comes out. And most of the reviews were pretty good. There was one from Publishers Weekly, I I always have to tell this story, that was kind of a skunky review, and it really kind of hurt my feelings. And um, yeah, and so I was, you know, walking around the house with a big cloud over my head, and Rebecca, my daughter, who was then 13, and as as you now know, was so integral to my writing of the book and was with me through it, um, saw that I was you know, upset and she sat me down on the couch and she said and this is pretty much a direct quote dad you did not write your book so that publishers weekly would like it you wrote it because you had something to say that no one else was ever going to say if you didn't say it wow um, yeah <laughs> yeah so that's pretty good for 13 right yeah
1: <laughs> so so I,
2: yeah so she really kind of pulled me out of the dumps but then you know, months went by, and um, and you know books don't tend to last in bookstores terribly long. you know they're there for a few months, and then the unsold copies start getting shipped back, and your Amazon ranking plummets and so forth. And that was happening toward the uh, in the first few months of two thousand and eight. The book had come out late summer of seven. And my daughter and I went for a walk one day, and we we sat down on a on a on some outdoor steps uh, fairly close to our house. And and I remember saying to her, well, sweetie, it looks like all of our dreams didn't come true on this one. And then on the first Monday of of April of of that year, 2008, I was at a school-wide faculty meeting because the chancellor of the city university was visiting all of the various campuses. And uh, the meeting was wrapping up, and I got a tap on the shoulder from one of my colleagues in the English department. And she said, you have to leave this room now. It's an emergency. I thought, oh no! You know who's been hit by the bus? You know one of my parents dead. What? What? What's going on? So I walked out, and the department secretary was there. She said, "Sorry to drag you out of the meeting, but there's a photographer from AP on the way. You just won the Pulitzer Prize." <gasps> and I just—oh my gosh! No, that that can't really be happening. Uh, and and so I made That's her helpful. repeat it. And then I don't know if you've ever seen like old footage of Bjorn Borg at Wimbledon when he wins, the hands go up to the face and you just <laughs> sink to his knees. That was literally what I did. And, uh, and it was just this incredible moment, just, you know, all of the blood drains out of your extremities and you, you just, you know, you, you don't feel real. And that, that night was one of the worst night's sleep I've ever had because i just start <laughs> goes off. I want a blood surprise. I want a surprise. <laughs> so oh, it, was, it, <laughs> you know, it, it was this really electric feeling and and it came at uh at precisely the right moment in in my life you know it, it really kind of uh saved me in a way and turned things mm. around so uh oh, so wow. that's in a nutshell what it was like
0: well i mean the book is so deserving i remember mm-hmm. it was recommended to me by one of my college professors and um just after I had like started getting into Louisa, I went to visit Orchard House. This would have been 2000, spring of 2009. Wow. So I went to, I read hospital sketches in my American Lit class as a senior in college, visited Orchard House, and came back to college. I went to college in Newport, Rhode Island. Came back to college like, hello, who has never told me about Louisa May Alcott? You guys don't know anything. <laughs> and um, the chair of the department was like, no, we do because we all read this biography last year. because so it was the Pulitzer. So that's how I, oh. I read Eden's Outcast. And, wow. you know, as Jill said, we go back to it again and again. This podcast mm-hmm. would not right. really exist without. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, John, like the the book has changed my life. And I know that sounds dramatic, but I would not know Jamie. I would not be where I am right now. I would not be talking to you if it was not for Eden's Outcasts. I'm not going to get emotional. I promise yeah. myself I wouldn't. <laughs> But like, that's, it has, it has changed my life. It really has. Um, I, I hope that Louisa would have found me anyway, but Eden's Outcast is everything.
2: That's so fantastic to know. And I hope you and I can talk more about this at another time. I mm-hmm. uh, love that. Writing, writing a book is a lot like putting a message in a bottle and, you know, tossing it out into the ocean and not knowing where it's going to land or what difference it's going to make or if anyone's going to care. And, and, and writing is lonely uh, because Mm -hmm. there you are, you know, with your own ideas surrounded by the books and just, you know, churning it out. And it doesn't seem like anybody else really cares. Uh, And then this remarkable thing happens where people you've never met read your stuff and it's real to them. It matters. It gives them something. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, I can't be more grateful for, you know, for, for those experiences and those opportunities of talking, you know, with, you know, it doesn't happen every day to have that reaffirmation. So thank you very, very much.
0: We would love to hear about like an exciting research discovery. We got to talk with professor Shealy earlier in this series of interviews. And he told us about, you know, discoveries of Louisa's thrillers and just, we think of research as not necessarily being this exciting. Space. I do. Still does. <laughs> it is, <laughs> but it is. It has these big aha moments. Yeah. It has it, and that's why you do it, right? It's like all this searching for that one gem, yeah. like reading Infinite Jest, all these sentences for like that one little insight that was like. <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> so, anything stand out for you in your career? Uh-huh in your research that was like a big aha very exciting
2: well there there might be a couple and before I really answer your question I just want to tip my hat to Daniel Shealy because he really is an amazing man as you know he's he's Mm -hmm. tremendously kind and thoughtful and he has broken so much new ground with the Alkutts that we can only stand in awe of of what he's accomplished um so so hats off to to Daniel. Um, I have a couple of things. The first one's uh, pretty quick. And that is when I was um, editing um, and putting together The Annotated Little Women, I went to Orchard House and, uh, and ended up going through boxes of, uh, of Alcott family possessions and memorabilia. And there was this one particular box that had a list of its contents. And then at the bottom of the list, it said, and one other item. Ooh, what could that possibly be? So take everything out of the box and there's one thing at the bottom, you unwrap the paper around it. And it turned out that it was the new Testament that had been owned by Lizzie Alcott. And as you know, there's a moment toward the beginning of little women where Marmee gives the girls, each Mm -hmm. a copy of the greatest life ever lived. And people have, Critics have argued about whether that were, were those New Testaments or was it Pilgrim's Progress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the better argument always was New Testament, but nobody knew for sure. And so, aha, I've got it. This really shows that, you know, that it was a New Testament. But the 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 one that, that stands out head and shoulders above anything else that I've been able to discover uh, is the story of John Surrey. Uh, John Surrey, who, as you know, uh, was a, uh, a patient of uh, Louisa's at the Union Hotel Hospital in Georgetown, uh, who had been mortally wounded at Fredericksburg. And for a century and a half, people have consistently misidentified him. Why? Because Louisa misidentifies him herself in her own writings, because in her journal and in hospital sketches, she refers to him as a 30 year old Virginia blacksmith. And so anybody, and, and there are like alternate spellings of his name, too. No one can get that right. And so if you were looking for John Surrey, just based on Louise's writings, you'd be on a wild goose chase because he was not as old as she said, and he was not from the place that she said. When I was working on the early portions of, um, of the research for A Worse Place Than Hell, I read uh, a book by a, a historian, George Rabel, called Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg. At the end of one of his chapters, he quotes a letter that he says was written by an army nurse about this soldier misidentified in his book as John Shure, S-H-U-R-E, who's been shot through the lung and he doesn't know that he's going to die, but his case is hopeless. Ah, That was it, my gosh. And so um the first chance I got, I jumped into my car, I drove to the um, the, the War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where the file was supposed to be the John Surrey papers, as it was mentioned in Rabel's footnote. Thought, this is gonna blow it up. And as it and also, my God, he says that the the letter was written by a the nurse letter, yeah. Louisa, right? Yeah and and so I got there and the and the file was about this thick. There were two things in it. Uh, One of them was the letter that was quoted. It was not from a nurse. It was from, from his commanding officer. Okay. Um, Okay. But the other item in the file was a letter from John Surrey written home, which contained his regiment, his company, the name of his commanding officer, everything that I needed to find mm. out exactly where he was born, who his parents were, the names of his siblings, exactly where he was on the Fredericksburg battlefield when he was wounded, right? Wow. wow. And this was, and, and also the day that he died, which turned out to be the day after Christmas, 1862. And this, for me, was probably as close as I'll ever come to you know, finding a relative who was missing in action in war. To retrieve from from the shadows of history, uh, this young man who would have been anonymous if it had not been for the fact that Louisa cared for him in the hospital, mm-hmm. and and but who even after his death warrant is basically signed exerts an influence on her that changes her life. Jill, you've been kind enough to say that that you know your life would not be the same if it weren't for Eden's Outcasts. Louisa May Alcott's career would not have been the same if it hadn't been for John Surrey. I probably never would have written Eden's Outcasts if you know if if she had not written hospital sketches and then been asked to write Little Women and so on and so forth. Just all right. of these dominoes, right? Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's tremendously moving to me that this um, almost anonymous private, um, uh, this 21-year-old Pennsylvania blacksmith from the 133rd Pennsylvania Volunteer Infantry uh, could go to war to try to save his country and end up transforming all of us, although never knowing it.
0: Right. right. Um, It's uh, such an instrumental role.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. So so you want to talk about a, a moving discovery? That's my moving discovery.
0: That was it, yeah. I think Louisa changed his age because she thought he was too young for the nurse in the story to have such, like, an intimacy
2: with. Um, you know, I, I I have speculated about why she changed his age. Of course, 30 was how old she was.
0: Right.
2: So, so, right. It would have kind of made it more acceptable. And as far as the Virginia part of it goes, we're talking about a time when West Virginia was still part of Virginia, right? It hadn't split off uh, to be a different state yet. And it turns out that Surrey's family had very strong ties to a college in the northern tip of the West Virginia part of Virginia. And so it's only, it's my guess that he talked with her about that. And she inferred from it that he was from there rather than from across the line in Pennsylvania. It Mm -hmm. turns out that he was a blacksmith and his blacksmith's forge, believe it or not, was in the same Western Pennsylvania town where the fourth plane went down on nine eleven, Shanksville, so, oh, wow. Pennsylvania. Yeah, mm. so you know, these these things that all just come together and they yeah. just
0: connect and intersect crazy
2: yeah. ways. Incredible. Yeah, and um, so anyway,
1: we've talked a lot on this podcast about Louisa's life, but also her legacy. And so as we look ahead at how Louisa has been interpreted and continues to be interpreted, what do you think? will be Louisa and Yelcott's legacy and interest, not only to scholars, but also to the public going forward.
2: I think that we as a society, we as Americans have gone almost as far as the pendulum can swing in the direction of materialism, rampant individualism and a kind of indefensible selfishness. And When that pendulum finally starts to swing back, there's going to be no better guide for us than the work of Louisa May Alcott because her writing is about caring. It's about self-mastery and not self-indulgence. It's about um, the extraordinary, wonderful, beautiful things that happen when we share one another's burdens. And when we set aside our um, sort of vain material wishes and wants in the name of, uh, of, of a core of values that is much more human and much more kind. And so if, and Louisa May Alcott is always going to have you know, innumerable things to give us. But, um, but that message of mutuality and sharing and love has got to be at the top of the list.
0: Ah, yep. That's beautiful. Uh, So, John, we're dying to know what's coming next. What are you working on now?
2: Well, it's great that you asked, Jamie, because I actually have uh, in in front of me uh, a little portion of the book proposal that I'm writing now which is going to take me up uh, finally out of the American idiom and into a place that I know is dear to your heart. Uh, really? I'm going to be, yeah. I'm going to be writing a book about uh, Voltaire, Frederick the great and the friendship that transformed Europe. So, wow. uh, so yeah, I'm now diving into Voltaire's correspondence. I'm reading a lot of the secondary material and so on um, because you know it it appears to me that there are these two kind of very different impulses of civilization, one that comes from Germany and one that comes from France, and that they almost begin with Voltaire and Frederick the Great, these two extraordinary individuals who were very close friends but also had a very tempestuous friendship uh, that lasted for for more than four decades. Uh, wow. So uh so the tentative title is uh The Autocrat and the Infidel, Frederick the Great, <laughs> Voltaire, and the Friend and the Friendship That Shaped Europe.
0: Okay. Wow. That can't wait to read unique. that.
2: I can't <laughs> wait to write it.
1: <laughs> Does and that mean you'll course...
0: get to do more research in France and travel abroad?
2: Uh that may very well happen. And God bless Frederick because he wrote in French.
0: Oh, that's great. So,
2: yeah. so I don't have to dust off my rusty grad school German. I can just okay. you know, I can read the French. Good.
0: Very nice.
1: And then you said you're working on that screenplay of Louisa. Yes.
2: Right? Yes, that's true as well. Uh, my friend Scott Halverson and I are steaming away on a, on a, a screenplay version of you know Louisa's uh, time as an army nurse. Uh, nice. And the, the tentative title there is simply Louisa. Uh, we'll probably come up with something a little snazzier as time goes by.
0: All right, thank you so much for meeting with us and talking with us. This was so enlightening and gave us so much to think about, and I'm sure our listeners are going to love it.
2: Well, the pleasure is positively mine. Any chance that I get to reconnect with you, Jamie, I jump at. And Jill, wow, so good to get to know you. This is this is spectacular. And thank you. Uh, and you know, please, you know, consider me a friend now. Um,
1: Oh, well, thank you. That means so much. It was wonderful to meet you and talk with you, John. I hope this is the first of many more times.
2: Outstanding. I hope so.
1: Join us next week for our final conversation of season two, an intimate chat with Jamie and me. We'll be discussing our latest Elcott research, readings, and recent trips
0: to historical sites. For more about Louisa, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Let Genius Burn. If you're enjoying the show, please give us five stars on your podcast app. Reviews help us find new listeners and new fans for Louisa. You'll find more information, including the resources used for this episode, in the show notes and on our website at letgeniusburn.com.